Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 57, our wrap-up of AAFLD 2021. In this conversation, discussion of NITs and their role in clinical trial design continues, with Manal Abdelmalik, Ian Rowe, and me expressing three different views of where things might be heading. Stephen Harrison suggests that the increasing volume of different kinds of NIT data correlate, and that will create, quote, too much data to ignore, end quote. As the conversation draws to a close, I mentioned that there is an audience member attempting to join the conversation, and Stephen emphasizes the idea that the first drug approval will completely change the trajectory of drug development, data development, and insight generation, all in good directions. One clear theme of AASLD 2021 was that the emergence of vast quantities of data supporting NITs as better drug performance metrics can advance the field dramatically. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Stephen, while you were talking, someone who's been on this podcast recently, who kind of is in the guided systems business, uh, Lars Johansson of Ataros Medical, sent in a question. I'm going to invite him to join us. Uh, I'm going to hit the green button. And Lars, I think when I hit this green click sign, you should come up on this podcast. Lars Johansson. Hi, guys. Good afternoon. Oh, good night. Yeah, it's, uh, it's getting late over here. I'm in the same time zone as June, I guess. So, no, I, I just had a question, Stephen. I, when you mentioned the spleen volume and also relating, I think also someone else comment on the AI approach on the data from the biopsies. So the first I think was related to because there is so much data collected on liver imaging and in any of those trials where you have PDFFs collected you can reanalyze the spleen volumes from positive trials from negative trials it's actually quite simple to do so i just think that's something that i, I would encourage people to think of and go back and do because like we saw in the in the 89 bio trial if you have long-standing cirrhosis that may not work but in earlier f2 f3 populations where you still have dynamic plasticity in the spleen i think it is actually a good biomarker of reduced portal pressure and, and the that you're doing something good to the patient. The other thing I wanted to comment on was on the AI uh, for biopsies. I mean, we haven't really been doing that in the trials for the imaging data, but it's very similar. There are things in those images that you don't see. So just we do as we do it with biopsies, I think we should go back and do that as well with some of the imaging data and then reanalyze those. Because there is obviously so much outcome data now, and there is so much information that we haven't used. Stephen Harrison. First of all, that's very good insight, Lars. We have this huge body of data that everybody's stovepiped. And we've talked about for years looking at, you know, our placebo groups and putting them all together across cohorts, Manal and Yorn. I think we talked about that at the Liver Forum like three years ago and haven't done that. And now we have all this imaging data where we could easily go back in mine. I mean, Yorn, I'm just thinking about you grab Sophie and go back and look at all the data that we've collected over the past three years with all the trials. And I'm sure we could get sponsors to de-identify that information and allow us to look at things like spleen volume relative to response to therapy histopathologically. I mean, Lars, you just made me think it's unfortunate that the easel abstract deadline is like days away, because otherwise that would have been a great opportunity to, to mine for that. Jörn Schattenberg. Thanks for coming on, Lars. Good to see you. The point is then, of course, uh, this is interesting. It's emerging. 
the fallback maybe is now we're trying to predict liver health based on the associated spleen and the changes in blood flow. And there are many aspects that we have to consider in this. And while I fully agree with you that we have to deepen our understanding of the pathophysiology and how this feeds in, we got to also keep the focus and see, you know, what's the best target to get that potential drug approved. And here we're stuck with the biopsy for numerous reasons, as we discussed before. But I agree with your point that we have to look at that to better understand pathophysiology and, and, and maybe we'll see different patient types, patients that then do respond, but the others not. So maybe this is an aspect of sub-segmentations of the patients. Yes, I agree. And I, I think my comment was more like, it's a shame if we don't use the data that has been collected and really try to get the most out of it. But I agree. And I, I mean, like we've seen in this meeting, the imaging and, and the NITs and, and the, the combination of them, like you said before, Stephen, is really coming on. And I think we will see a lot more in the next year. One other comment I had was just, I mean, because we want to see that the change in biomarker predicts the change in disease. My only question or fear here, I mean, having worked in athro for many years in atherosclerosis, is like if you take LDL and athro, we know that LDL was approved as a surrogate for statins, but not necessarily for any drug classes. So there will only be so many statins. Is there a risk that those biomarkers could have the same, that they will only be approved for a specific mode of action? Or do you think that you would have things that would be so wide that you, they could be approved for any NAS drug? I think there will be NITs that are agnostic to mechanism, and there will be NITs that are specific to mechanism. We've seen the latter happen already with PDFF. I haven't seen that yet with ALT. I haven't seen it yet with MR elastography, and I haven't seen it yet with multiparametric MR or ELF. Now, ELF obviously is more of a fibrosis biomarker, so if your drug is more of metabolic, let's say a GLP-1, we wouldn't necessarily expect ELF to change in a short period of time, but we would expect PDFF to change, likely CT1. So maybe those are two parameters to look at there. But like I said, it's early days, but we are beginning to recognize that there are some, unfortunately, that are mechanism-specific. Manal, go ahead. I agree with Stephen. I think we're going to see both. There are biomarkers that are going to be agnostic and some that are going to be potentially very specific for a unique drug class. The ratio, for example, of T3 to reverse T3 maybe for or sex hormone binding globulin or anything that could define an outcome of a unique target engagement that could be modeled in a predictor of treatment response. So I think we'll have both, but the current biomarkers that are more agnostic are the ones that are currently on the table because the larger trials that refine these predictors to a drug-specific endpoint, we haven't crossed that threshold yet. All right. Well, thanks a lot for uh, having me on and uh, good luck. It's exciting to listen to you guys. Well, Lars, Thank you, and thanks for joining us. And to everyone else who's in the chat room now, if you have another question about what we're talking about, don't be shy. You can repeat that process. We can actually get two in at once if we had to. All right. So one of the things that strikes me funny is that we said at the beginning of the first session of this meeting on Sunday night that there was a tremendous amount about non-invasives in this meeting that really mattered, and then proceeded to spend the next two days talking about lots of things that happened in the meeting, but nothing about non-invasive testing. So now it seems like we're kind of making up for it, which is a good thing. What other major points about the meeting, other places in the making a dent question, do we think are worthy of our time? I think what came out at the meeting and is an extension to what Louise has already said, is the heavy impact on genomics and genetics. Not only with the VA Million Veterans Project, which was a huge, huge sample size to get, you know, GWAS data from veterans that really uncovered some of the genes that we do know play a role in the, in the pathobiology, such as PNPLA3 and TMF6, but others that are unknown. And I think analyzing 
utilizing this very robust data set further will help us tease out some of the heterogeneity that exists in the disease. But there was also single cell RNA-seq data presented that utilized an animal model to look at liver injury repair and unique pathways, particularly hedgehog signaling, that then translated that data into human RNA sequencing data and was able to define fibrogenic pathways in a dose-dependent response. And I think we will lean on single-cell RNA-seq data. We will lean on large population genomics and genetics to take this very heterogeneous cohort of patients and further stratify them into subgroup A, B, C, D, and E, and then tailor our therapeutics accordingly. Right now, we're throwing very promising drugs at a collage of colors in a population where we're defining under one umbrella, uh, and we're not matching accordingly the optimal drugs to the right patients. It's like one size fits all. In the future years, we're going to see that becoming more refined. Drug A fits patient A, drug B fits patient B, and we'll see these treatment responses go from 40% at large to maybe 70, 80, or 90% because we're better in targeting the right therapies to the right phenotype of patient. Louise Campbell. One of the reasons that I raised it at the beginning and then connected it to the trials was Yaron Rotman did a really good session on Friday about genomics and he basically put it into the practical world. Is it good for screening a patient? Is it good for diagnosing? Is it good for X, Y and Z? But what he came up with was it probably wasn't a place for early diagnostics and things like that but it was for picking out patients in clinical trials and the more difficult to locate but also in where it showed very strong worth for him was in the picking out patients who were going to get HCC and cirrhosis in that way. And then Elizabeth Speliotti's did a very good session Monday whereby they were looking at the polygenetics of patients' diets and who responded to what diet and in which way and you could pick out the different patients. And we've talked a lot on here about the fast responders, the ones in the placebo arms that are going to respond against the ones who don't and whether or not going back to some of these drugs like Aldafermin or I did the Jamie Bosch article yesterday that Stephen's on, there was 2,000 patients in that, those drugs failed. Looking back to see whether or not did they fail or were they enriched with the wrong type of people who were going to respond more to diets and whether or not looking retrospectively again, something on the same theme as earlier, mining the data that we've got to see whether or not these drugs work well in certain individuals. Is that where the strength lies retrospectively, I suppose, going forward? Yeah, you bring up a great point. I mean, just thinking about what you said and reflecting on some of the trials we've done, you know, diabetics proportionately have more NASH than others. Diabetics proportionately have more ballooning than others. Diabetics traditionally don't resolve ballooning as well as others when we use our treatments that we currently have been studying. So that's kind of the paradox. It's the exact patient we want to study, but we're measuring something that's very challenging to show in a relatively short period of time resolution in. And you know, it's not just partial resolution. You don't get partial credit for taking a ballooning of two and making it one, taking clusters of balloon cells and getting it all the way down to one. You still are a failure. And I think 
that's where we have to get better at. But but to, to your point, we inevitably realize that that situation exists. This is a very heterogeneous disease, multiple different drivers, multiple different genetic influences, microbiome influences, what we haven't even talked about on the podcast, the data that's come out relative to that. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, November 24th, with our next episode in which we review recent cirrhosis studies and reconsider their possible role on the NIT pathway as we've discussed throughout this meeting. If you want to join the live audience Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, email surflive, that's S-U-R-F-L-I-V-E, at surfingnash.com with a request, and I will send back a link to serve as your admission ticket. Hope you'll join us then either live or on the podcast. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.